0: Welcome to the second episode of our On The Pulse podcast and today we're going to talk about bias or demographic differentials.
1: Bias is not prejudicial bias. We're not saying the face recognition software is white and it doesn't like you because your skin is a different color.
2: The human being that looks at your passport um, might not recognise you accurately either. But for some reason, when a machine's doing it, that unsettles people.
3: When motor vehicles came along, we went through lots of difficult situations, but we didn't come to prohibition of vehicles. We identified that there was a need to develop rules for the road. And I think with artificial intelligence and facial recognition and that, we're very much at that juncture now.
0: And that is really following the report by NIST on the face recognition vendor test. To discuss this report or clarify a bit more what is in the report, I'm joined by three expert group members of the Biometrics Institute. First, I have Terry Hartman, who's a member of our Future Direction Group. And in his day job, he is the vice president of Cognitech in Asia Pacific. Then we have Mick O'Connor, also a Future Direction Group member. and the Vice President of NEC's Europe Government and Public Safety Division. And then Sandra Leighton-Grey, who's a member of our Privacy Expert Group, and she's also an Associate Professor of Education at University College London's Institute of Education. And Sandra is particularly interested in technology and its impact on children and young people. So thank you all for joining me. And before we go into the main findings, really, of this report, bias in facial recognition has made a lot of headlines over the last 18 months. So, Terry, let me ask you, what are these main issues that have been raised around this?
1: Uh, Yes, Isabel, to I think reinforce this number one issue here is that bias is not prejudicial bias. We're not saying the face recognition software is white and it doesn't like you because your skin is a different colour. So we are talking more about statistical bias and this can relate also to the inputs. How are images collected? What kind of lighting conditions? Are they scanned or photographed? How are algorithms trained? And uh, all of these things affect the outputs. But the fact of stating there is bias, this is an emotive term and it's especially a motive term for target is an historical target such as women or American Indians. There are demographic differentials is definitely a much more accurate statement. And most of the negative press is really putting in a prejudicial bias implication here rather than a statistical or a um, algorithm-devised dev- differential. A second factor here is that Much of a discussion of face recognition bias as such, in recent years, cites two studies that showed poor accuracy of face gender classification algorithms on black women. And those studies didn't look at regular facial recognition algorithms, but they did say black women were male 35% of the time. And that's been widely cited to negatively criticise face recognition accuracy. But this is face analysis software. It's really, does the software estimate that this image is male or female in terms of gender face analysis? Whereas face recognition software is asking you, what is the confidence score from the software that two images are of the same person? And then does that score statistically vary if the probe subject image is female or from country X, or is there a demographic effect which is exactly why the title of an NIST report is not bias. The title of an report is demographic effects.
0: Thanks, Terry. That's really interesting. But I mean, for the public, privacy groups and media, they they have all been very vocal about their concerns on this topic. So, Sandra, let me ask you, do you think they understand the issues correctly, especially after what we've just heard from Terry? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's immaterial in some ways, whether it's a face analysis problem or a face recognition problem. I think as far as the public is concerned, what they see is prejudice and bias, and it makes them very uncomfortable. Um, I was recently at Gatwick Airport um, standing behind two women of colour in the queue who were being shouted at that they weren't using the facial recognition gates properly And uh, they were told they were not laying their passport down properly. And they were. It was the system. I could see it was the system. And I could see that they were getting quite frustrated and upset by being shouted at by an operative um, in front of a, a room full of people. And they don't care whether it's a face analysis problem or a face recognition problem. I mean, it's an inherent bias, whatever. It doesn't matter whether it's a statistical bias or a social bias. You know, somebody's told the software what to do, and somebody hasn't factored in the very clear um, issue that not everybody using the product is going to look exactly like them um, or be easy to read. And it's just not enough to other these people and say they're a bit odd and different and actually it's working for most of us. So, you know, in a sense, the, the, the NIST report kind of gets into that a little bit and, and talks about the different contexts for that. And I think we really have to hang on to that when we're we're thinking about the role of biometrics um, within society. Yeah, that's fascinating, Sandra. And I would
0: say, once again, you know, what you just described there, knowing the technology isn't perfect. I mean, we don't really have any perfect technology. It's really down to the the process here. I mean, the way that these officers handled the situation. So, you know, that's interesting. But once again, often then the technology gets blamed when it's really more about the process that wasn't done properly to, to handle such challenges that we are facing and that we're all already addressing, obviously, in terms of how the technology could potentially be improved. So let's come to the report then. Mick, let me ask you, who is NIST?
3: So NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and it's based over in the United States. And it's primary purpose is to focus around innovation and industrial competitiveness. Over time, very much become recognized as somewhat of a world leader, and it tries to uh, take a scientific approach to assess the functionality and the performance of technology. So in the past, you know, identification used to be driven by human identifications, and then that progressed into fingerprints, but now we're looking at very much machine-driven, um, identification through facial recognition and hence there's now this analysis to try and identify how precise and efficient are these machines in identifying people or faces and within that is a measure looking at demographic variants of the machine this is where you're then testing the machine to try and see how good or bad it performs from the algorithms and they're the the thinking parts of these machines that do all the matching how well they perform both on gender and ethnicity spectrums.
0: Thanks, Mick. Terry, can you summarise in simple terms what are these main findings or takeaways from this report?
1: Yes, and this will be a relatively long answer, uh, Isabel. I think the number one takeaway is that this is not a report you can understand by scanning the executive summary. Uh, Yesterday... I sat for three hours with our head of algorithm development in a presentation he'd be de- designed to be very simple and covering under an hour. Uh, there are things such as, on page seven, we found false positives to be tw- two and five times higher in women and men. And then if you go to page 56, it'll say this is a marginal effect. Perhaps 98% of women are still correctly verified. We're really talking about less than 2% of comparisons within that. Overall 100%. So there's a lot of different information in different pieces of a report, which uh, you really have to read a lot of a report to understand some of most of what it's trying to say there. The second point is that the false uh, negatives or the false non matches are absolutely low. That absolutely low means really low. And that's very important because what that's saying, uh, if we look at some of the news headlines around this, it'll say a demographic effect is 30 times worse for a particular country. And that sounds bad because if it was 30 times worse in 100, that number 30 in 100 is one third. But when you drill down, we're talking about 1 in 10,000 versus 30 in 10,000. And yes, that's 30 times worse, but but if uh, I asked you, is 30 in 10,000 much different to 1 in 10,000, you'd say, well, that's kind of negligible. And those are the worst case figures here. Um, The matches, false matches are 1 in 10,000 for men in Eastern Europe, 30 in 10,000 for women in West Africa. So uh, exaggerating the um, numbers here, or taking the numbers out of context more to the point, is a dangerous thing. You've got to understand what that size is. It's 30 and 10,000, for example. The third thing is not all algorithms have the same effects. And uh, different algorithms might be matching better African-American males. Uh, Several algorithms are worse on American Indian females. But, you know, a lot of the algorithms around the world have never seen American Indian females either. So, there are different factors amongst different algorithms. Also, not all use cases have the same effects. If you looked at the NIST report around mugshots, comparisons of US mugshots, you get differing results to if you look at a visa application to enter the US compared with the actual border capture when the person entered. So there are different factors here around verification uh, versus identification. It does say and uh, report on and verify some things that you would intuitively expect. So an imposter who comes from the same country of the same sex and about the same age has a better chance of looking like um, the, the person who they're pretending to be than somebody who has a different sex or comes from a different country or is a different age. Intuitively, you would expect that, but this report drills that right down to show as you add a different factor there, you do slightly increase those false match rates. It also points out there are various factors and potential reasons besides just the demographics of the person. And there are other correlations you can have around demographics. For example, women who are wearing full headdress that covers the ears and covers the sides of the face, that might have an effect because they're wearing uh, that attire and they happen to be from West African countries as well. Those countries might have lower image quality capture because they've got poorer scanners, uh, less sophisticated offices in which the enrolment is being done and so on. So there are a number of factors that are alluded to and pointed to in this report that can also affect the uh, demographic end results. So uh, I think the final thing here is it's the ingredients for a recipe. Running this report would be a little bit like running a report against fingerprints and finding as a result of that that construction workers have poorer fingerprint matching rates than office workers so what do we do about that well we should introduce some capture devices that perhaps look at infrared or penetrate the finger skin better so the NIST report here is doing that it's providing a cookbook of hints that will differ for each vendor there's 1200 pages there for vendors to find their own results and to improve on what are already low absolute error rates and they might do stuff like uh, look at their training data set compositions, can I get more information on American Indian women, feed that into my systems, more information on West Africans, depending on what what sort of uh, information you have in your system. So it's a recipe, it's a cookbook, it provides a lot of food for thought and information.
0: Wonderful. Well, let me ask you about one of the ingredients then in your cookbook recipe. Uh, you, you, And this is, you know, we have listeners surely for this podcast who are uh, very knowledgeable about biometrics, but hopefully some others less so. And it's even an area I get sometimes confused. You mentioned false negatives and you talked about how these effects of these, well, these demographic effects are not as, Bad in in um, certain use cases. So can you just explain, maybe just to sum it up, because it it seems from what you're saying that, you know, not all facial recognition applications have the same faults, uh, which is I think an important message to to remember. It's not one one applies to all. So. You know, explain a little bit more false negatives. So why does it not matter? And what is this false negatives? What does that actually mean? And then you obviously have the false positive on the other side. Can can you shed a little bit more light for me on that?
1: Yeah, at that level, you can think of a false negative as you're failing to uh, associate one person. You're failing to match one person against something you expected them to match against. So the earlier example of your passport image is in your passport. You walk up to a border. You're expecting that your image at the border, captured at the border, will match the image in the passport. If it does not match, that's a false positive. Sorry, that's a false negative, if it does not match. Yeah,
0: so I get falsely rejected, basically. I should be let through, but it rejects me even though I'm authorised to go through.
1: Yes. And then the converse of that is a false positive. So if somebody pretending to be you uses your passport and the system does not reject that person, then that's uh, incorrectly associating those two persons. That's a false positive or a false match.
0: And there is that issue as well around this fear of watch lists and mistaken identity. So where does that fit into all of this?
1: So there's a potential that if someone in a watch list closely matches you, that you may be uh, asked to verify in more detail whether or not you're that person. Now, that is no different to systems already in place in airports around the world where there are passenger name records and there are no-fly lists. And if your name happens to match someone closely on a no-fly list, you'll also be asked some further questions.
0: Well, that's the process that should happen, exactly, and that is in place in that particular application. Thanks, Terry. Sandra, let me ask you then, come back to you. So hearing all this and having this report, uh, do you think we can be less or maybe even more concerned about the risk of this mistaken identity? Because that seems to be one of these fears out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think as systems are rolled out, and it's not just in border control, so, for example, there's um, various biometric applications used in, say, Africa to determine whether somebody who's sitting an examination is the person who's supposed to be sitting it. Um, you know, these are, are sort of quite high stakes things for individuals and they're high stakes things for systems as well. People have to have trust and and, and faith in a system. Um, so if systems are confusing things and the attitude is, oh, well, it's only a a one percent um, error rate, it's fine, but it's confusing the same types of people over and over and over again. Um, I think it's quite difficult to to have confidence in a system if it's confusing two people that are sitting sitting and examine a virtual proctor type situation.
0: Yeah, thanks Sandra. Mick, um, we have had a conversation about this before and we talked about this fear of removal of freedom and liberty that that seems to be really what's um, understandably out there in the public um, and, and the concern about that on the one hand where you get detained deliberately, so that mistaken identity issue, but also somehow facial recognition has become um, basically a term for surveillance. Um, And I think in order to really understand this, uh, it's good to talk about some scenarios or some of the use cases and understand really what facial recognition can do. So with your background in law enforcement, can you talk a little bit about that or give us one or two use cases that really explain the use of facial recognition and maybe the risks that are there around these demographic effects?
3: Identification is critical, particularly in the public um, safety setting. And hence, you know, we've, you know, in, in the past made use of uh, law enforcement officers or, or the mechanisms to support the identification. And those mechanisms have been subject to error rates as well, maybe not as Um, considered or reported in the same way as as we're seeing now because we're able to put more of a scientific rigour around machines assisting in this process. Um, But let's look at a couple of areas where the application of this technology um, is is either being used or being considered for use. So I think first of all let's look at aviation and border security. Um, We can see it's now um, becoming more prolific in its use uh, because it's more of a controlled setting. So it's helping out with uh, watch-listing and prevention against counterterrorism and organised crime threats. Um, but it's also helping identify uh, those uh, vulnerable subjected to human trafficking, and missing persons, moving through those focal points, um, and also the tracking of fugitives. So so that's on the crime front, but it's also helping with uh, easier passenger flows, as we're seeing. People able to get through the airport quicker with accurate identification. It's helping to reduce delays, so it's bringing about better customer experiences and um, is having a direct impact then on resource, economic and ecological efficiencies, which is which is important. Uh, And then you can then move then out in from from that controlled setting to uh, stadium and event security, which we've seen in a couple of instances. So it's helping to reduce ticketing fraud. It's helping to make those environments safer by. Um, supporting the prevention of banned spectators or um, other protagonists getting into some of those, uh, those events. Um, and then, uh, you know, on the wider public safety setting, we've seen having value in the identification of missing children and vulnerable persons. Also, uh, it can have some utilisation around uh, protection of individuals from stalkers or those uh, subjected to antisocial behaviour abuses. Um, And interestingly, as well, we're seeing it now being considered within public health settings. So, you know, for the identification of people that suffer with dementia as an example that's gone missing in a community. It can possibly help in identification of those. Um, And also with regard to those that maybe are vision impaired, being able to identify people, maybe not just from the voice, which a person can hear, but importantly from the face as well now. So there's some, you know, assisting technologies in utilisation that can be used in in those sorts of settings and then access controls to schools and places of safety you know trying to make sure that you know only those that are authorized to be in those sensitive um, buildings or health centers are actually allowed to go in and uh, finally you know if we then look at post-incident response you know we've all unfortunately seen the tragic events of terror and other activities and naturally it's often a a common response then try and collect mass CCTV footage or whatever but but that's a huge burden on law enforcement and others to try and process that mass amount of data but with the use of facial recognition technology and other, other technologies they can get through that much quicker and through that automated processing which can enable officers to be more responsive they're able to get onto the street quicker to possibly locate and detect the offenders. Whilst there is this fear of mass surveillance or mass utilisation of this technology, in most instances that we're seeing in the normal working environment, it's aiming to be used as an enabling technology to help those responsible or tasked with those activities to make better decisions slightly quicker.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, with uh, a growing world population, we do need to use technology to help us. But there's also that question about how much better biometric technology is in recognizing people compared to humans. And I think we all know that. you know, there's studies uh, on this that we could drill into, but we might not go there at this point. Um, let me ask um, Sandra, just because of what we've just also heard from Meek, um, we know there's obviously really good uses for using biometrics as an enabler, as a tool to help us um, with certain use cases. But coming back to this question of mistaken identity, we need to have a balance somewhere. We need to find that balance between freedom and security. Do you want to comment a little bit on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's something that. Um, the public's, I think, very concerned about. And it comes back to the idea of proportionality. So we've got to think about the role of legislation within a liberal democracy. And we, we've decided that on, on one level we need to be kept safe. So we're prepared to give up some um, freedoms. Since 1917, we've had passports. Now we have e gates in airports and so on. Um, so that's just one example. But sometimes this is seen as a step too far. Um, if the additional benefit is out of scale with the perceived intrusion. So that's the the kind of social problem there. Um, Now, machines are obviously a lot more accurate than humans at looking at particular um, aspects of the face and other biometric readings. Um, But for the users, you have an emotional difference between looking at the component parts of the body, for example, a fingerprint, um, and something that they've, they've voluntarily given and the idea of the whole, so perhaps the iris versus the whole face. And you're, you're encapsulating what it means to be an individual human being in the whole face in a way that it's perhaps not seen the same when you're just taking one reading of one feature. It kind of builds on the idea of a historic discrimination on the basis of facial characteristics that we've already referred to in the podcast so we've had that throughout history and that remains so the the human being that looks at your passport um, might not recognize you accurately either but for some reason when a machine's doing it that unsettles people and we have to think about why that might be and it might be because if the machine is um, identifying and logging formally your ethnicity or an aspect of disability or a religion or something like that um it identifies you as a member of a group in a way that just a fingerprint just an iris reading can't Um, and then it's going into a remote system and you don't quite know what's happening with that information and then if if it's being scaled up if we think about the kind of wild biometrics where you know you haven't sort of given consent for your biometric to be captured other than in in a very general sense so you haven't just put your fingerprint on a a machine to have it read, or given given your face to be photographed, or something. So if you're filmed uh, in a shopping mall or a sports centre or something, it becomes quite unsettling. And then you're wondering, well, what do they think about me? What how are they categorising me? And it's the simplicity of the capture that becomes very unsettling for people, because even though there might be a sign up saying, well, you 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 know, you, if you walk through here, you're giving your consent. For example, around King's Cross Station, they were they were doing. Um, that kind of surveillance. And the idea was, well, people would just walk through and, and the, the act of presence determines consent. But I think that's quite problematic for a lot of people because you can't just automatically exclude yourself from larger and larger geographical areas on the basis that there's some digital capture of images going on that you haven't really got a control over. I went into the co-op in my village a couple of days ago when they've started filming the street and and people in cars going past and all sorts of things and they didn't think there was a problem with that so you know that would then rule out half the village for people to avoid if they didn't want to have their image taken so the in the middle of all of this there's just sheer scale of this capture it seems the, the potential for adverse consequence uh, for the innocent is just far higher because there's you know increasing amounts of it and if there's a flawed algorithm, and yes, it might have a very low error rate, but it's still flawed, it might be flawed for the same group of people all the time. So their, their personal experience of flawed algorithms might be a lot higher um, because of the sheer number of them that exist in everyday life. So their lives become more and more complicated by various multiples. So we have to think about this as a pretty significant philosophical problem because we're basically doing a bit of a dragnet approach to um, the, the digital capture rather than line fishing as we might've done in the past. Thanks, Sandra. I mean, it is interesting to really think
0: about how the public perceives things and how technology can create concern. And it's ultimately really about the trust and the control, isn't it? But fascinating um views Sandra i mean let's let's just think for a moment we've talked very much about these government applications law enforcement and borders Terry, um, let me ask you, I mean, there's consumer applications, obviously, as well with facial recognition, and we don't seem to hear all that much concern about that. So, we are all very used to using our smartphone now with a fingerprint or even a face biometric on it. It's very convenient, very easy. Um, What's the situation with those kind of consumer-type applications? Do we need to worry about this bias issue in that context and also maybe what Sandra just said about how people perceive it because I don't seem to get concerns there very much that that make headlines.
1: So you have to look at the use cases here and you have to look at what the applications are. So the kind of applications you're talking about, which might be uh, mobile phone financial transactions, for example, are typically one to one. It's, are you matching a photograph previously taken of you? And it's usually on the same device. In any case, false negatives are much less in one-to-one scenarios, so the risk of chance of you not being you are much lower. So that tends to mitigate against a lot of demographic effects that may happen when you're comparing with a range of individuals and you're getting a false positive against someone who happens to look like you. you know, and that's not the kind of application you're running typically in consumer-controlled applications. And, and uh, it's also a multi-factor authentication scenario, better than a password. So you're not just using face to get in always, even if you're using face on your phone, there is a factor of authentication there that you have your phone as a second factor for example so liveness and usability factors are much more of an issue around those kinds of consumer applications than um, than face recognition demographics in these one-to-one scenarios
0: excellent thanks terry that's really helpful and i think it's really good to make that differentiation Uh, between those different use cases and understanding this better. So um, I guess, Sandra, let me come back to you. The report also highlighted an issue with the algorithms not being able to competently recognise children. Now, children is obviously an area you are interested in. Looking at this, um, what are the impacts or what are the scenarios? Are there areas you're concerned about or maybe the contrary, where, where you think it's not so much of a problem?
2: well it's always interesting when we start thinking about the case of children because they're seen as some kind of societal add-on even though they're 25 percent of the population and there are very many of them uh, in circulation they're seen as a bit odd and different and other um which is always a bit uncomfortable for me as an education researcher um so yeah they're kind of in these systems they're downgraded as citizens so they can't use the e-passport gates because, uh, certainly not when they're very young, because it's very difficult for them to um, differentiate amongst children. Um, Children's biometrics are often very similar. So they're forced to queue for a much longer time as their faces are so readily confused. And, you know, coming on top of the idiocy of holding up your newborn um, to try and get a passport photo uh, done for them, for biometric passports, When newborns really do look very similar and it's very difficult to get a very floppy baby to have a picture taken. It just seems to me that we're we're saying something quite interesting and um, a little bit unsettling here about who's important in society and who isn't. And the punishment for not being important is the very long queue and the occasional telling off um, by border control. And so I think we, we need to think a little bit more carefully about what we think children are. Um, and for them to be a bit less of an afterthought in these systems. Mm, thanks, Sandra. Very interesting. And, you know, so many, again, so many
0: different use cases uh, where, you know, the technology can be used to protect children as well. I'm just even thinking about, you know, if the kindergarten or the school is in a bad area of town and who has access to the kindergarten and could you control that by a, a biometric? So it's, yeah, it's always that balance. I'll, I'll just it, start in.
2: I mean, that, there's a lot of us that think that, you um, going into a relatively small kindergarten run by the parents where they've decided to use a biometric for entrance. That's a very good example of of a positive way of using kind of biometric recognition systems, um, because it means that Uh, everybody's sort of had a a democratic conversation about whether they want it used. And it really is something that's been decided to be a lot more convenient. So I think Mm -hmm. there's a difference there between people collectively having a lot of say in whether these are, are, are deployed or having it imposed on people when they feel uncomfortable with it.
0: Yeah, thanks, Sandra. Very interesting. Actually, Mick, let me ask you a question, and we're coming to to a close here very soon. But um, before we talk about what, what do we do next, let me just ask you, obviously, you also working, like Terry, for a supplier of uh, face technology. What do you think you your community can really takeaway from this report? Or what is it uh, really that we need to do to limit the impact of bias?
3: It's a difficult question, because first of all, to limit bias, it it comes down to, I think, two aspects. One is on the technology. So, um, you know, how is this technology evolving? What opportunity is it being given to learn? And how diverse is the data set that's being put into that to try and reduce the error rate and, and improve its system's performance. And we've seen, I think, from the technology aspect that, that that's improving significantly. And the next part, though, is very much then the use case, which then comes into the public debate and also the operational environment of, of the policy, which can then frame the process from the use of this technology. And I don't think, you know, from what we've seen today to try and um, close off some of the the public risks and the the questions that we've had, that we've we've really been in a position of having that policy or that public debate about utilisation. We've seen, as Terry outlined, it's, you know, um, a frequent use of the the technology within banking and, and some of the easier systems to enable... Uh, identification for uh, specific activities in the banking and also in the aviation sector. But as Sandra rightly um, pointed out as well, when we then start looking about public utilisation of this in a wider setting, oh, are we actually having that informed debate with regard to where do we need to use it? Because otherwise we're not going to be proportionate in its application. The public aren't going to be sanctioning it. Um, they're going to be looking for prohibitions and restrictions on it. And that then is then going to have a knock on them with regard to the process how we try and um, make use of it. So at the minute we're seeing um, some testing or some mission creep. some would describe it in the use of the technology in the absence of it being um, more informed in its, in its application. So, so I do think that you know, to try and counter this narrative of bias with demographic uh, behavior of, of the technology, we do need to look at it in the round. We need to look at those three constituent parts of the process, the policy framework that's utilised within it, because uh, the minute it seems, it's all quite a bit one-dimensional for me, where it's it's all about the the technology, the technology is proving itself, um, at varying degrees of functionality. But in the absence of those other two components, it's no surprise we're in the current situation that we are.
0: Thanks, Meg. Terry, then let me ask you, what, what do we do? Do we ban it, take it off the shelf, or just keep doing what we're doing? More research? What, what do you think?
1: Well, I think there's an element of context here. I mean, you could say, do we ban cars because they contribute to global warming and go back to horses? Do we ban iris mm-hmm. because maybe you can diagnose health via an eye image? Voice biometrics will eventually be good enough wherein it can do one-to-end matching effectively on voices. So should we ban it now? Every technology has this. It's not unique to face. And uh, so it becomes topics and things like appropriateness for use making those kinds of decisions. And those decisions vary from society to society. It would be very easy for us to say, yep, let's regulate the use of facial recognition technology. Now, do we have a world government that's going to be able to uh, make that happen everywhere? Or do we as suppliers have a responsibility to do the best we possibly can to these absolutely small differences even less? None of these issues were being talked about 20 years ago when facial recognition was maybe 60% accurate. But as soon as it becomes 99% accurate, then we have a number of questions here and we get things distorted a little bit. So it's really important to remember we're looking at a small piece here and those people in the queue in front of you might have been black, but they might have been white. And were the processes of the images that were put in their passport the same? Uh, was that related to to their demographic or was that related to the uh, encoding of that chip done by some government at the time? So there's a responsibility, I think, on uh, on any kind of technology to understand that it has appropriate use in appropriate contexts. And those vary a lot. If we just said we're going to ban face recognition uh, for all children, then we're we're uh, hurting the people Sandra talked about who want to have uh, face recognition at their childcare centre to ensure that some uh, imposter doesn't steal their children, and they make a decision to do that and to use the technology for that. On the uh, supplier side, it's also about looking at this report, understanding the um, demographic groups, the conditions the report was undertaken, and uh, improving our algorithms in the best possible way we can in terms of how we do all that. So that's, that's the important takeaway here. This is a guide. It's a guide to help. But it's also really important to know we're striving to improve something that is a relatively small Error rate, yeah, very inconvenient for people when they hit up against that. But, um, you know, we have technology that does work quite well here and there are enormous positive benefits.
0: Nick, you want to add to that?
3: I think, you know, just to, to come in on what Terry's saying there, I think that, you know, I don't believe that prohibition is the solution here. We've seen episodes of prohibition in other settings in the past, um, which, again, haven't been the answer. Um, but it's very much about, you know, as, as Terry highlights, I think that the use of this technology has brought um, technology per se to the public debate more, which I think is a, is a positive thing. Um, as a consequence of that, we've seen significant advancements, not just in the, the functionality of that technology in the last 10 years as a consequence of it being used in some of these public settings, but importantly, the behavioural aspect of the company's that are responsible for creating this and many that are in this space are now very much driven about their social value responsibility they are looking for proportionate lawful use of this technology and to do it in partnership so that uh, both with the community and with regulators or society to make sure that it is used in the the most appropriate way and no one wants to see ubiquitous use on this in those or- orwellian settings But where it does add value um, to help, then as with all technology, then we should be looking maybe to make use of it because we're going to get advancements from it.
0: Thanks, Mick. Like Terry said earlier, you know, different facial recognition algorithms have performed differently in these tests. Uh, We have standards for facial recognition. We have this report now. How do we get organisations to actually do the right thing, guiding people? The Biometrics Institute has privacy guidelines. Does every organisation look at using biometrics, use our privacy guidelines to start? Not necessarily. So, Sandra, let me come to you. I mean, do you think regulation is the only way or banning or whichever it is to get people to use all this information? that is there because they don't necessarily do from my own experience at the Biometrics Institute.
2: Yeah, it can be a bit of a Wild West sometimes, but I think one of the things that really comes out of the report is the variability and quality of the different products. So you had some that were really exceptionally accurate and then others that were really quite poor. So there's a range there. And the concern is that we we sort of think of this stuff as it's all bespoke systems for particular Um, contexts that are being sold and they're not I mean sometimes they're they're off the shelf or you know very lightly adapted um, rather than being bespoke for a particular organisation so there's an issue there about well what happens if different regimes buy the same off-the-shelf products and you're um, misread on lots and lots of different systems what does this say for your right to protest for your right to travel that kind of thing So what's the answer? Well, the answer is to have a lot more stakeholder involvement in how these systems are designed and deployed and um, for consent to be more of a real thing rather than the thing that happens by default. So more of an an opt-in after a series of collective conversations about their value. And how do we do that? Well, we often do that through our elected representatives and we do that Um, through regulation. So that's quite a sensible approach. Um, So we have to think quite carefully about setting an example for countries who have got the resources and ability to do this well, setting a kind of international tone for the kind of direction that that regulation should travel. Yeah, thanks, Sandra. And, uh,
0: you know, the Biometrics Institute worked with the United Nations Counterterrorism Executive Directorate and the Office of Counterterrorism on a compendium for recommended and good practices for the use of biometrics and data sharing and counterterrorism. And even that compendium, which is publicly available, hasn't really been used probably as widely as it should be. And, you know, it focuses obviously on law enforcement, but it stresses the importance of putting any biometric output into the context which means have a person there who makes a final decision Um, and you know again we can only continue i guess to have these conversations this open dialogue and remind people of all the good things that are out there including this report by nist on the demographic effects I'd like to thank you all. Just before I close, any final thoughts, Terry, anything else you feel we should add?
1: Just our cursory summary here has taken the best part of an hour. I think there's room for work to be done on improving the um, information about what the report does and doesn't say. And uh, what we're doing here is going a long way towards doing some of that.
0: Wonderful, Terry. Mick, any final thoughts or key takeaways for you?
3: I think where I get comfort is we're starting to develop the rules for the road for this type of technology. When motor vehicles came along, we we went through lots of difficult situations, but we didn't come to prohibition of vehicles. We identified that there was a need to develop rules for the road. And I think with artificial intelligence and facial recognition and that we're very much at that juncture now. And the the work of the Biometrics Institute and, and others within that I think is very important. An industry recognises its role and responsibility to, to be an active partner in developing those. And finally, um, if anyone does consider wanting to make use of facial recognition, I think what the NIST report demonstrates absolutely clearly is you need to know your algorithm. Don't just assume on this, there's now opportunity to look at the scientific rigor around functionality and performance. And only through the better use of this technology and an informed use of this technology um, will we start to develop better confidence in it.
0: Wonderful. And Sandra, from you, any final thoughts?
2: Well, I think the the thing that really came out of the report for me is the need for high quality products and not to make too many compromises. Um, so there needs to be more attention to detail on that and more pride in the job, I think. Um, so not just producing the thing you can get away with selling, but, you know, working to the, the highest possible quality. So that speaks very nicely to the, the rules of the road idea. And embedded within that, we can have a kind of high democracy um, push as well, I suppose, so that Um, We're aware that this is quite a powerful tool and that it needs to be um, considered in the right context. And then I think with that and appropriate regulation and um, appropriate use, then you are getting more towards something that can be enabling in the way that everybody's been talking about today. Thank you, Sandra. I love the comparisons to
0: driving a car on the road or cooking up a really good meal. It sounds like we have some work ahead in ensuring we all know how to drive biometrics. Um, And I think also accept that sometimes we do get it wrong, but then we need a process on how we deal with that particular situation. Thank you all three. Um, It's wonderful to have such uh, knowledgeable and passionate people join us here for the biometrics institute on the pulse podcast we will certainly continue you know driving the agenda but also bringing the public to the table so they better understand how we drive or what we are cooking so thank you all and uh, i look forward to speaking to all of you and i hope our listeners will enjoy the second edition of the on the pulse podcast